You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Morning. It's good to uh, have each of you online this morning tuning in with us. Uh, if you will, turn to Acts chapter 26. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father in heaven, you are gracious and you are kind. And uh, Father, we, we're amazed at just how good you've been to us as a church body. And Father, we've had a lot of challenges that we've had to face, not just over the last three years, but, but really all the way back to November uh, of 2016 in October of that year. And everything after that has just been a challenge after challenge after challenge. But Father, you have made us stronger. You have grown our faith. You have focused us on what is most important. And Father, we thank you for all of that. We thank you, Father, for this next transition that we're about to go through in the coming weeks. That Father, you have blessed us with being able to repair our building as we move back into that building. Father, we want to be sure that we thank you and give you praise and worship and honor for that. Father, it was through your hand through your power, through your guidance, and through your wisdom. This allowed us to make this transition back over into that building. But Father, we also want to thank you for all those that have given of their talent, of their time, and of their treasure to make this possible. Father, there has been sacrificial giving on all three of those fronts over the last many years by many folks in this congregation, and we thank you for that. Father, we pray that you would guide us this morning in your text and in your word, and I pray, Father, that above all things, that you be exalted. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that I have learned uh, over time is that people don't always believe even when they see. One of the common arguments that I hear or I have heard down through the years is that if uh, God could just show himself, if he could just do some kind of uh, amazing work that uh, a person would believe. Well, the facts are that, that even when people see, they still don't believe. On April 15, 1945, uh, General George Marshall, who just happened to be the chief of staff over the Army in the President's Cabinet, sent a letter to General Dwight Eisenhower. Now, at this time, uh, Dwight Eisenhower was a five-star, I think he was a four-star general at this time, but he would become a five-star general. And, of course, in eight years after this, he would become the president. He sends, George Marshall sends a letter to Dwight Eisenhower right at the end of the World War II. And, and they're beginning to uh, see all of the atrocities uh, of the German war machine, the Nazis, and what they had done in the concentration camps. And General George Marshall decided that he would go visit one of these camps firsthand. And the reason he did this was he wanted to see firsthand evidence of, of all that he had been hearing. And the reason he wanted to do that is because he wanted to make sure that there was a record, a very important, documented, well-documented record of all that happened in those concentration camps so that the world would never, ever forget the death and destruction and evil that happened. Well, he writes this letter, and he went to the Ordruf concentration camp, and he writes a letter to General Eisenhower, and this is a paragraph right out of that letter. He says, quote, The things I saw beggar description. The visual evidence and the verbal testimony of starvation, cruelty, and bestiality were so overpowering, overpowering as to leave me a bit sick. 
I made the visit deliberately in order to be in position to give a firsthand evidence of these things. If ever in the future there develops a tendency to change these allegations merely to propaganda, end quote. So General Marshall, all the way back at that time, as he's looking at these atrocities, he has this incredible insight that, that he wants to make sure that everything that they see and everything that they've experienced is well documented because they never want history to repeat what happened when 11 million people went to their death because of a military regime and a powerful entity named Hitler. He wanted to make sure that all the pictures and all the film and everything that happened there was well documented so that somewhere in the future no one could ever say that the Holocaust was a fake. Eisenhower ordered 80,000 feet of film to make sure no one would ever deny. Yet today, yet today, there's a growing number of people who deny that the Holocaust even happened. They, they account it as propaganda. They account it as just film that was never really based in reality, that it was some kind of fable that has been produced. Even though we have thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures and thousands and thousands of documented accounts of what happened inside of those concentration camps. I, I find it absolutely astounding that we have people today who take the position that the Holocaust was a fake. You know, Paul, in his time in Caesarea, that was only about 30 years after Jesus resurrected publicly. So only about 30 years have passed at the time Paul is standing in front of Felix that we looked at last week. And today we're going to look as he stands before Felix and another guy by the name of Agrippa, I'm sorry, Festus. Uh, Festus is going to come on the scene, take Felix's place, and, and Festus is now going to move forward with these charges against Paul. What's amazing to me is even after 30 years, a short period of time, there are people still walking around in Paul's day who witnessed the resurrection. There's lots of them. Even Paul himself has witnessed a resurrected Lord. Yet Paul is going to be accused of being insane. And only 30 years have passed. Well, here we are all these many, many, many years later, and not a lot has changed. Because in our public realms today, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, it is very likely, very likely, that you may be made fun of for that belief. That you would put your faith in a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth who is purportedly uh, has the ability to do some kind of miracles, and then he, he lives his life in obscurity only to die at the hands of the Jews and the Romans, be pronounced a th nothing more than a blasphemer, a false teacher, be hung on a cross between two thieves while the world watches him die. And then there's this, this rumor that gets passed around that after three days he resurrected. You can hear in my voice the, the ideas that people have about what you believe and where you put your faith, that, that you too are somewhat insane. Well, Paul has has the opportunity to share the gospel with people of a lot of power, a lot of wealth, and a lot of influence. And today we're going to get introduced to a couple more. Paul faced Felix with authority, with courage, with, 
with the opportunity to share his testimony and share the gospel and point him to the resurrection. And if you remember last week, there's this point in time where it seemed like, it just seemed like Felix may be being persuaded. But then we found out that Felix was only interested in a bribe, that he actually wasn't really interested in knowing more about Jesus, even though he knew a lot about the way. He knew a lot about what Christians believed. When it came right down to decision time, it was really more about money, more about his own comfort, more about pleasing the Jews than it was about putting faith in Jesus. Well, Felix is going to have his time in the limelight, and, and then Felix passes off the stage. And then another guy comes to power after Paul has been in prison now for two years, even though he's not been charged with anything, even though Felix himself said that, that Paul is not guilty of any crime, certainly no crime deserving of death. And since Paul is a Roman citizen, he has to be treated within the law of the Romans. He can't just be mistreated. And so then Felix passes off the scene, and a new guy comes on the scene, and his name is Festus. And when Festus comes on the scene, he's got to deal with this Paul issue because Paul is being held in prison. Nothing's been done, and it's time for somebody to do something. But yet Festus doesn't really want to do anything either. Another plot is hatched by the Jews to get Paul brought back to Jerusalem and only to be ambushed. And Festus understands what's happening here, so he decides he's going to keep Paul in Caesarea. But then he finds out that King Agrippa and his sister Bernice is going to come for a visit. Now, Agrippa is a Jewish leader. He is not Gentile. He's Jewish. And he has a kind of a sordid past himself. Agrippa is considered the king of the Jews at this time. He has the ability to appoint the high priest. He has a long lineage of power in his family. His great-grandfather was none other than Herod the Great. If you remember Herod the Great in the Christmas story, he's the one that commanded all of the children, the young boys, to be murdered in an attempt to find this new king. His uncle, his uncle is the one who killed John the Baptist. That's his great uncle. So this man has a pretty sordid past, but he has a lot of power, a lot of influence, and he's considered the king of the Jews. And he, he comes to town and Festus sees an opportunity to get this mess off of his back, to finally deal with this issue with Paul and let Agrippa deal with it. Agrippa has a sister named Bernice, and of course there's all kinds of rumors floating around about what is this relationship with Agrippa and Bernice. It seems to be very sordid. So there's a lot of rumors going around about Agrippa, but Festus sees this as an opportunity to clean his hands of this issue with Paul and move on. But what we're going to see in the text today is just like what we saw last week. We're going to see incredible courage in Paul. We're going to see a calmness in Paul in the middle of, of great controversy, in the middle of, of where things are just absolutely going wrong for Paul. I mean, he's been held under no charges now for over two years. And instead of finding a Paul who's angry, instead of finding a Paul who's bitter, instead of finding a Paul who is just really, really upset, we find a Paul who is calm, collected, courageous, and focused. We don't find a Paul who is scared to death. If you remember, all of his friends were scared about Paul going back to Jerusalem. And Paul says to his friends, he says, even if I have to die into Jerusalem, then, then so be it. But I've got to go. There's no way for me to not go to Jerusalem. You've, you've heard me say before that 
less people are coming to faith in Christ today across our country than 30 years ago. If you look at statistics, and I've looked at them quite often, you'll find it consistent across any Protestant denomination that still stands upon the gospel. Any group of evangelicals, any denomination, you will find that there are less and less people coming to faith in Jesus today than there were 30 years ago. And we have to ask the question, why? Is it because the fields are no longer white with harvest? You remember when Jesus said that, that, that there's plenty of people who need to hear and plenty of people who need to respond and there are plenty of people the Holy Spirit is drawing to himself. What is most needed is for more workers to go into the field. So is it, a, is it that we've reached so many people today that there's no more people to reach? Or is it because less people are bringing up the name of Jesus? And if so, why is that? Is it because of fear? Is it because of distraction? The church, by its very definition, is, is called the called out ones. Those who've been set apart. Those who have met Jesus, experienced Jesus, been changed by Jesus, and therefore is no longer part of the world system. They've been separated and, and have been given the mission to go and tell others about this truth and this reality, this new purpose, this new life that they found. Yet less and less people are doing that. And I think Paul gives us a model here. I think, I think what we've seen Paul all through the book of Acts, his consistency, his courage, his faith, especially in circumstances that quite honestly would probably make me fold up in a corner, Paul shows great courage in front of influential, powerful, wealthy people. And he has a consistent message to share. I think it is imperative at this age in which we live that the church be exactly what it's called to be, the called out ones. I think it's imperative that at this moment in, in this juncture in history and time that we find ourselves, that it, is, that it is absolutely imperative that the church be what the church is called to be, and that is called out, separate. Not separate where we close off ourselves in buildings, separate in the fact that we've been changed and what we found in Christ you need to find, you need to understand, you need to hear. But it requires courage. Let's look at chapter 25. I want to show you a verse to kind of set the tone for what Paul is going to do next. In chapter 25, there is this back and forth of what's going to happen with Paul between Festus, Agrippa, what's going on, what's the charges, what's the Jews have to say about this. And, and then finally, Paul gets to speak in verse 10. And I want you to see what Paul says in verse 10. This is in chapter 25. He says, But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. There was this discussion about whether Paul should be sent back to Jerusalem because the only laws that they could figure out that Paul has broken has to do with Judaism, not with Roman law. And certainly they've not found anything that, that Paul is, is guilty of to require him to, to die. So Paul says in response that I'm before Caesar's tri tribunal, I'm a Roman citizen, and to the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself very know well. Very, know very well. He says... To Festus, you know that I've not broken any laws. He says, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? That's what Paul was asked. Paul, do you want to go back to Jerusalem and face a trial there? And Paul says, I've not done anything wrong. There's no reason for me to go back there. But notice what he says in verse 11. He says, if then I am a wrongdoer, 
and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them, then I appeal to Caesar. Now, I want you to, I want you to really get your arms around what Paul's doing right here, because it's very important. Paul says, if I've done anything that's guilty that would require me to die, then I am not afraid of death. We already know that Paul is not afraid of death, that consistently throughout the book of Acts, we've seen him go into places that he knows and has been told is dangerous, and Paul goes there anyway. And it's not as though Paul is reckless. I don't want us to come away thinking that the Apostle Paul is somehow reckless, that he's somehow seeking martyrdom. He's not, because he's appeals, he's appealed to Caesar. He's told them that he's a Roman citizen. And the reason he did that was to prevent from being beaten to death by a Roman whip. So Paul is in no way being reckless. He's in no way seeking out martyrdom. But he wants everyone to know that he's not afraid of dying. He's not afraid to face death. Now, Paul, throughout his letters, is consistent with this. He says, I'm not afraid to die. I'm not seeking it. I'm not pursuing it. I'm not trying to move up the timetable here. But what Festus needed to know, what Agrippa needs to know, and what anybody else who faced Paul needs to know is that if you're going to lord death over me, if you're going to try to threaten me with death, it's not going to work because I know what happens on the other side of that death, that I'm going to be reunited with my Savior. I'm going to be in his presence, and, and you can't scare me with death. And what an incredible thought that is. That Paul's faith in Jesus and what Paul knows about the resurrection, that, Paul, that Jesus' resurrection also includes our resurrection. That, that Jesus' victory over death means our victory over death. For anyone who's put their faith in Jesus, it, it, it equates to our victory as well. Paul knew that. Paul could speak. He could serve. He could, he could walk in confidence. He could face people like Felix and Festus and even Caesar. He could go to Rome. He could go through all that's going to happen in the, in the next week when we look at what happens next. He could face all of that knowing that no, whether he lives or whether he dies, it's okay. He was free to proclaim the gospel to all people, especially powerful people. The very people who had the ability to put him to death or put him in prison, lock him away, starve him to death, beat him with rods, beat him with whips. Paul could face all of that. It's not that he was seeking it. It's not that Paul wanted it, but Paul could face it knowing that even in death he has victory. Look at chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So, so now Paul is, is before Agrippa, and, and he's before Festus, and, and Paul now is going to be given the opportunity to speak. And instead of complaining, instead of gropping, instead of talking about his conditions, instead of being bitter, you know what Paul does? What we always know Paul to do. He starts talking about how Christ saved, changed his life, saved him, transformed him. Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Now, why would he say that? Well, King Agrippa knows Judaism. That's what he's grown up in. So there is a connection between Paul and Agrippa in fact, that, that they know the law, they know, they know what the Judaism and the Jews require. And so Paul says, I consider myself fortunate to talk with you. He says, therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning of my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time. 
If they are willing to testify, according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. This is exactly what Paul began to do when he was speaking before Felix. He says, I was a Jew of Jews. I was just like you. I was no different than you, Agrippa. I, I, I knew the prophets. I knew the law. I was, I was raised in that. I knew. And not only that, I hated Christianity with a passion. And as he continues on, he, he says some of the same things that he said to Felix. But I want you to notice verse 7 and verse 8. He says, to which our 12 tribes hope to obtain. In other words, this, this promise, this covenant promise that God had made. That how was the 12, 12 tribes ever going to obtain the promises? And he says this, and for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Paul says that the hope that he has that flows out of Judaism has been clarified in Christ. And he says, I have found that hope. I have found the hope that the law and the prophets speak of. Verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul shares his testimony and he says, I was once this, I was once a murderer, a killer, a hater. And I met Jesus on the Damascus Road and he, it was the resurrected Lord. And, and he changed my life. He, he, he told me on that day that he had a mission and a purpose for me, that, that I should no longer be kicking against him and fighting against him, that I should surrender my life to him. And I did exactly that. And, and Jesus changed my life on that day. And I've been living for him ever since. I've been doing what he's called me to do. And you've got to understand that, that your personal experience with Jesus is a pretty strong argument. Your own personal testimony, Paul's personal testimony of what happened to him and the obvious change that it's made in his life, Paul makes that as part of his argument against some of the most powerful people that he could stand before in his day. He, he, he makes the appeal based off of the change that was obvious in his life. So Paul shared his testimony, but that's not all that Paul does. He also says to them that the prophets and the law foretold everything that is happening in their midst. Look at verses, uh, look, look down at uh, verse 22 and 23. It says here, if you look, it says right here, To this day I have helped, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. If you remember in, in a previous time when he was speaking to the crowds, as soon as he got to this point, as soon as he mentioned the Gentiles, the crowd freaked out. But in this moment, he has Agrippa and Festus and a few others in the room, and he says, I'm only doing and teaching and proclaiming what Moses and the prophets, the, the people that you believe in, those leaders in Judaism, you believe in Moses and you believe in the prophets. I'm only teaching what they taught. I'm only proclaiming what the Word of God says. Paul was, Paul was confident in the entirety of what Scripture was teaching, that there would be a Messiah, that Messiah would be a great servant and he would be from the line of David. But yet that great servant would suffer and he would take upon himself the wrath of God, the, the sins of the world. In Isaiah 53, we see that, that, that 
Isaiah says that this suffering servant would take all of that upon himself, yet he's innocent. But that wouldn't be the end of the story, that he would resurrect, that he would come back to life, and that he would establish his kingdom. Paul simply says, I'm teaching what the Bible teaches, what you say you believe. Paul also hopes to persuade. Look at what he says here in verse 24. It says here in verse, and he was, as he was saying these things in his defense, it's almost as though Festus interrupts him. And Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. If there's ever been a day where the Christian community needs to be speaking truth and rational words, it's today. That, that what we believe is true, and not only is it true, but, it, but it's rational, it's, it's believable, it's, it's something we can stand upon. The Bible talks about real factual events. And not only does the Bible speak about that, but we have archaeology, we have all these other writings that testify to the reality of what Scripture's saying, but make no mistake about it. When Paul is standing before Felix or Festus or Agrippa, he's standing before them and he's saying, I have not lost my mind. What I am telling you is the truth, and it's believable if you'll only take a moment to consider what I'm sharing with you. As a matter of fact, Paul's life itself speaks of something greater than Paul. How can a murderer become a church planner? How, how can someone with so much hate in his heart be used in such a way to change so many people's lives, to establish so many churches, and to stay consistent with that same message from the beginning of his ministry to the end? How is it that Paul can do that? I find it interesting that when Paul was brought into this room back in chapter 25, you'll find that when Agrippa comes into the room, he comes with pomp and circumstance. He's dressed with great dress, and he's He's got a lot of wealth and a lot of power, and then they bring Paul in, and Paul is ratted and tattered and beaten and limping, and his clothes are not all that nice. You see this contrast. And instead of Paul being intimidated, instead of Paul being kind of silenced because of shame, Paul stands and proclaims the gospel. Verse 25, I want you to look at that again, verse 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind. And here lies the conflict, folks. It seems like, as you follow Jesus, that the world thinks you're nuts. If you haven't experienced this, you will. They think you're crazy. Because everyone knows, everyone knows that the dead don't come back to life, right? Everyone knows that miracles are not real. Everyone knows that a blind man can't be healed and, and, and be able to see. Everyone knows that, that logically speaking, that that Jesus couldn't raise Lazarus from the dead because when you're dead, you're dead. Now, all of that makes sense until you bring God into the equation. And when you bring God into the equation, then all of those arguments fail miserably. So don't ever think of the Bible as fable, stories made up by men far in our past. Paul was able to stand with courage over and over and over again because he believed in something real. Neither a man nor a woman will lay down their lives for a lie. 
No one is going to lay down their life for something that is a fable. But what we find consistently and what we've seen in the book of Acts over and over again is people doing the amazing things, doing, saying the amazing messages, sharing the truth, even if it means their own life is at risk. So I'll give you just a few things to think about. As we consider that if we have a message that is this powerful, we have a, a message that is this consistent, then why is it there are so few people that are hearing that message? If it, is, if it is life-changing, if it can take a murderer and turn them into a pastor, if it can take someone with that much kind of hate and, and set them free to where not only they're forgiven, but then used of God, then why are we not seeing more of that? Maybe it's because of fear. Maybe it's because of fear. So what we find in Paul's life, and I want you to write this down, is this first point is your fear must be conquered by faith. Your fear must be conquered by faith. The source of your fear, that source, whatever it is, whatever it is, if you're, if you're afraid, if you're afraid of what people think, if you're afraid of what people may say, if you're afraid of, of being singled out, you know, I've, I've come to the conclusion that we're not all together completely over our middle school years, are we? You know what it was like to be in middle school? You always try to fit in, right? You want to fit in with the crowd. You never wanted to be isolated. You want to fit into some kind of subgroup. Well, I'm convinced that we've not gotten past that. That we still desire to, be, to fit in with some group, and by fitting in, we're willing to take the gospel and put it in the background somewhere. To put our faith in Jesus in a building somewhere. That we only practice it on Sunday, and we don't ever bring it out in any conversation that we have with anyone out in the world who's lost. Why do we do that? Because we're afraid of what people may think. But you've got to see this. Is that whatever you're afraid of is what actually controls you. Whatever you're afraid of is actually what is controlling you. For some of you, you've never put your faith in Jesus, and your fear is keeping you from doing it. Your fear, you've heard the gospel, you know exactly what your next step is. Your next step is to express faith in Christ, to, to, to understand and to accept and to vocalize to Christ himself that you are a sinner, lost and separated from him, and there's no way that you can fix yourself. But there's something inside of you, some kind of fear that keeps you from doing it. Fear of what people are going to think. Fear of what people are going to say. Fear of how the world is going to see it. Fear of, of being isolated and being separated from the popular crowd. If you'll look closely and you'll look long enough, you'll find that whatever you're afraid of is what actually controls you. And let me add this. Whatever you're afraid of may actually be your God. I mean, think about it. If that fear controls you, and God is what is supposed to be controlling your life, the Holy Spirit is what is controlling your life, then we have a problem, don't we? You may be surprised by this, but there's been several times over the last few years I've been afraid. I was afraid of what Hurricane Matthew was going to do to our community and how we would ever recover. I was afraid when two years later we have another hurricane and now we're, we're recovering from two hurricanes. I was afraid of what that's going to mean for the church, what that's going to mean for our, for our mission, what that's going to mean for our ministry, what that's going to mean for, for our community and people living here. And then, then we, we have to move into a building program. And I was afraid, well, what is all that going to mean? Now, now on top of everything else, we've got a building we can't use, and now we've got to move into a gym and all that that means. And, and I'm going to tell you, there's been many times down through this journey of being your pastor, there's been times I've been afraid. But I cannot ever allow that fear to conquer 
I have to replace that fear with faith. And I can tell you that every step of the way, when I've run back to God and ran up into his arms, I put my faith in him. He's always given me what I needed, and he's always shown me the big picture. Even if it took some time, he said, look, just, just be patient. I've got this. Your fear has got to be conquered by faith. I heard this quote from Max Licato. It says, fear will always knock at your door. Just don't invite it to stay. Fear is always going to be an issue. It's always going to be a problem. It's always going to be knocking on your door, but don't invite it to stay. How do you not do that? Putting your faith in God and trusting Him. And knowing that no matter what you're facing, He's in control. What could you accomplish if you weren't afraid? Have you ever thought about that? What could you accomplish, not only in the kingdom of God, but in your family, in your marriage, and raising your kids, your grandkids, on your job? What could you accomplish if fear wasn't controlling you? I think you're thinking of things right now. For those of you who've never put your faith in Jesus, I'll tell you what will be accomplished if you could put your faith in Him and get over the fear. Change life. Just like what you see in Paul, that's possible for you. All the past mistakes washed away. All the shame washed away. Forgiveness, purpose, meaning. So your fear is conquered by faith. Secondly, your testimony is your greatest story. Your testimony is your greatest story. If you've already come to faith in Jesus, you have something that is powerful that you need to be sharing. And it simply is, I used to be this. I, I, I had a broken life. I had broken circumstances. I had a broken marriage. I had a broken life. I, had, I, was, I was completely overcome by addictions. I don't know what it is, but you know what your testimony is. You know where Christ found you. It hasn't been that long ago, has it? For some of you, you've been Christians for a long, long time. But in actuality, it hasn't been that long ago. And you remember full well who you once were. Who you once were. That testimony is your greatest story. Who you were before. How you met Jesus. Maybe it was vacation Bible school. Maybe it was sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning. Maybe you had given up on everything else and you just wandered into a church one day hoping to find hope. Maybe you were in a hotel room and you opened the drawer and there happened to be a Bible there left by the Gideons that you opened and read. I don't know what your story is, but I know this. If you've been changed, you met Jesus just like Paul did on the Damascus Road. It may have not been the same circumstances. It may have not been a blinding light, but I can tell you this. When you met him, he changed you. And nothing's ever been the same since. And that part of your testimony says, I was once this, I met Jesus, and now I'm this. That is what the world needs to hear. That is what your friends need to hear. That is what your family needs to hear. That's what your coworkers need to hear. You don't have to have a degree in theology. You just have to have been changed by Jesus. And if you've been changed, you've got a message unlike any other message, and the world needs to hear it. It's powerful. Of all the things that Paul could have shared in front of both Felix and Festus, what does he do? He simply says, I was once a murderer, I met Jesus, and now I'm this. And I'm just doing what the Bible has been teaching all along, that there's a Jesus and he resurrected, and I put my life and in, in my faith in him. It's a powerful tool to reach others. Third, your fear must be conquered by faith. Your testimony is your greatest story. Third, your Bible is trustworthy. Your Bible is trustworthy. Think about this. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, there have been constant attack upon this book. 
these 66 books that we call the Bible, there have been countless books written, documents written down through the years of people who absolutely hated this book. And it hasn't stopped. And this thing has been tested, it has been tried, it has been looked at at every angle, it has been, it has been maligned, it has been hated, it has been called all kinds of things, and yet, guess what? It still stands. Of course, we're told inside of this book that it will, that, that every part of it will be fulfilled, that it will never pass away, and we have evidence of that, that Year after year, generation after generation, books come and go. There's books you've read that you forgot about a long ago. But this book is special, and you know that it is. There's nothing like it on the face of the earth. And as such, it is God's word to us. The creator of the universe has revealed himself to us in this book, and that's why it's special. That's why it will never pass away. Your, your Bible's trustworthy. It's enough. It's enough. I, I don't need any thing else. I don't need any other people's opinions. I've got what I need right here, and you've got what you need right here. Paul said in front of Festus, he says, look, I'm only teaching what the Word says that you believe in, that you know is true. It's not insane. It's not crazy at all. It's the full account of God's love for humanity and His desire to redeem. You know that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is, is really one big story? You know what that story is? God's pursuit of humanity to redeem him, to pull him back into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Both the Old Testament and New Testament, it's the same story. God's undying love and grace and mercy for a world that has turned their back on him. That's the story of the Bible. And it's enough. It absolutely is enough. And finally, your fear must be conquered by faith. Your testimony is your greatest story. The Bible is trustworthy. And your faith is faith-worthy. Now, what does that mean? Your faith is faith-worthy. Paul was accused of being insane. You know what Paul's answer to that was? He says to Agrippa, he says, What I am saying to you is true and reasonable. True and reasonable. This faith, this, this history, this beautiful thing called Christianity, it still stands right along with God's Word. At the beginning, we talked about how that, that even the Holocaust now is being doubted, something that we have thousands and thousands and thousands of documents. We have people actively now saying in public that the Holocaust is false. Well, here we are thousands of years after Jesus' resurrection. And over those thousands of years, Christianity has been attacked, just like God's Word has been attacked. The, the validity of the resurrection. You remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that without the resurrection, we have no faith. We, we have no preaching. We have no church. But Paul says to Agrippa that it is, it is incredibly reasonable and absolutely true that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, that your faith in Christ 
is worthy to be brought up in community. You don't ever have to think for a moment that because you've put your faith in Jesus, you're somehow less than, that somehow your argument is based in emotion, based in fable. No, your, your life, the change of life that you've had is based in the reality, the factual evidence, the historical event called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not only is it worthy of your time, it is worthy to be brought up in this community who believes that you believe in foolishness. Been tested, it's been argued, it's attempted to be destroyed, and yet it still stands. Your faith is faith worthy. As time goes on, as time goes on, I'm not trying to be some kind of prophet of doom here. I'm no prophet at all, but if you look at the trajectory of where things are heading, your faith is going to get tested. I'm talking beyond the next election, beyond the next series of events that's going to happen over the next several months. Even if your guy, whoever your guy is, gets in, the trajectory over time seems to indicate that calling the name of Christ may cost you something. And what is needed now, what is imperative now, what is absolutely crucial now, is that we have courage. Not the courage that comes from ourselves, but the courage that comes from Christ, knowing that what we believe in is worthy, it's rational, it's true, and that we don't have to apologize for that ever. But I believe, I sincerely believe that in the years ahead, you may be accused of being insane, following Jesus. You may be ostracized because of it. And I think it's important that we stand today, have courage today, because Jesus has already told us and Paul has already told us that things are going to get a little difficult. and They're going to get worse as time continues on and as we await Jesus' return, things are going to get worse. So now's the day to be courageous. Now's the time to get grounded in God's Word. Now's the time. Now's the time to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Father in heaven, Above all things, we recognize that the gospel is true. It's not a fable, not a myth, not a story that a bunch of guys got together and came up with, but it's real. And it has the potential to change a life. It changed me. People standing on this stage, it's changed them. So, Father, it is rational and it is true. So, Father, we don't have to offer an apology for it. We just simply have to be faithful. So, Father, maybe the next step for folks watching this morning is to put their faith in a Jesus who is real, a Jesus who is alive, a Jesus who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, just as the Word says, a Jesus who's coming again in power and strength, putting their faith, not fear, but faith, in a real, true, historical Jesus, just as the Word describes Him to be. Father, maybe for those who've already done that, it's time to be courageous. It's time to walk out what we say we believe. It is time to love unconditionally, but it's also time to share a testimony of a changed life. The time is now. In the weeks ahead, it's very possible that there's gonna be some tests by what we say online, by how we live our lives at work, 
And Father, may we be found faithful in the midst of the trial. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 